You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Having demanded voting rights, civil rights, and reproductive rights, the head of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization jokes that the baby boomers who number 80 million will be the group to ask for their own personal death trainers. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Schumacher. Dr. Schumacher has been a hospice professional for 25 years and is the president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Schumacher, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. It's wonderful to be here. What led you to hospice? Well, you know, when I was in my uh, early 20s, I went to hear a workshop being presented by Dr. Elizabeth Kupler-Ross, who had written a book at the time called On Death and Dying. And this specific workshop she was talking about, actually, interestingly enough, the dying child and all of the the differences, the needs, the, the wide range of opportunities to help children die and to support their family during the process. And I had had in my own personal life some, I guess, unresolved deaths from early on, a, a beloved grandmother, a best friend, another friend, and sort of realized in the context of that conversation that, oh my gosh, she's talking about me. She's talking about unresolved grief that I have experienced in my life that I've never really dealt with. So I at the time was working on a master's in psychology and decided to pursue support of terminally ill patients and their families and you know, a few years later moved to Massachusetts and as there was no hospice in my community at the time I thought it might be a good idea to start one and so I did I started a program um, back in 1978 which exists still today that provides care of the terminally ill to metropolitan Boston area so it's been a long path I think largely as happens with many hospice professionals beginning with personal experience and then generalizing to a professional life. What keeps you in hospice? It's the patients and the families. I get hundreds of of letters every year from individuals who have been cared for by one of the nation's 4,100 hospice programs saying to me essentially thank you for all that hospice continues to do and to provide for me and my, my family members. It was so meaningful. And so I think it's once you are bit by the hospice or palliative care bug wanting to help this population I think you really are someone who wants to maintain this. You know, from from my professional background, I still see the long-term benefit uh, to having had exposure in my own clinical life to helping people grieve and, and deal with loss. And I think that's still the main motivation. What do the latest statistics reveal about hospice? The numbers are growing. As I mentioned, over 4,100 hospice programs in the U.S., 500 new hospice licenses within the last 24 months in the United States. The numbers are growing. We're up over 1.3 million people in 2006 received hospice care. The length of stay is increasing. There's general recognition, I think, on the part of uh, health care providers and the community as a whole that when death does come, this is the alternative that helps people receive the peace, comfort, and dignity that they need with as little in- invasive, over-controlling medical uh, management as is possible to make sure that that individual's death is exactly the one that they would wish. What emerging trends are you observing? Increases now in uh, more and more services for children. We're seeing for the first time two years ago under hospice care, uh, less than 50% of the patients that we cared for were cancer patients. It used to be we were largely a, a cancer model, but now more and more patients are, who are not cancer patients who are dying are receiving hospice services. So the trend really is uh, the opportunity for us to expand the great services that we, we've been providing now to a much broader population. And I think that's going to continue. We're beginning to move closer to, under Medicare, the Medicare decedent population. Right now, only 22% of Medicare decedents are cancer patients. So hospice is now hovering around 45% 
cancer, the rest of them non-cancer. So I think we're, we're moving in that direction. What do you think hospice will look like in 30 years? In 30 years, you will see a seamless delivery model from diagnosis through bereavement of the family that would include the following. Prior to the actual acuity of a hospice admission, you will find more and more healthcare providers, hospitals, home health agencies, nursing homes, providing the basic tenets of hospice care, good pain and symptom management, psychological support, under the rubric of our stepchild, if you will, or of our child, palliative care, which is hospice programming with a much longer tail. Right now in the United States, hospice care is provided under the Medicare hospice benefit largely, which calls for a patient to be terminally ill within six months. Uh, under palliative care, you can receive many of the same benefits of hospice care, not as intensive, certainly, under the name palliative care. You can see uh, an individual patient receiving that good pain and symptom management pretty much from the point of being diagnosed before they become more and more clearly terminally ill. So I think in 30 years, you will see perhaps a new model of hospice and palliative care that goes from diagnosis right on through bereavement of the family, which is relatively seamless and people won't have to jump through through hoops in order to receive the good care that they wish. How much money is spent on end-of-life care in the United States? And of this amount, how much is spent on hospice? I don't really know the actual total amount of money spent on end-of-life care in the United States. But I do know that right now we're moving somewhere between 10 and $11 billion U.S. dollars are spent on hospice services in the United States. I would suspect, given the fact that we're now caring for about 40% of all deaths in the United States. I'm not sure how you would work that math out. And, of course, many of the patients who don't come into hospice do receive much more aggressive and costly therapies prior to them coming into the hospice uh, program itself. I would bet you're looking well over $100 billion in additional revenue or additional payments to non-hospice providers for end-of-life care. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Donald Schumacher, President and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. Dr. Schumacher, what are the funding sources for hospice? The major funding for hospice is under Medicare. About 80% of our services are paid for by Medicare reimbursement. The remaining 20% are a combination of commercial insurances, Medicaid, uh, which each state pretty much has a Medicaid hospice benefit. Uh, In addition to that, there are some fundraising dollars that come in that support hospice services as well. So that's pretty much the breakdown. What happens if Medicare dollars start to dry up? I can't imagine Medicare dollars starting to dry up for hospice care. What I can imagine is over the next several years, some pretty serious budget fights on Capitol Hill over the expenditures for for all kinds of health care. And I think hospice will have to be prepared to be at the table to make sure that we have our needs met and our clear patient demand uh, in front of Congress. I would imagine with a fair amount of good lobbying and support, uh, Medicare dollars won't dry up. And in fact, with the baby boomers coming along, as you mentioned earlier, I think those dollars are going to increase. What's the biggest misconception you think doctors have about hospice? I think the biggest misconception is, as an example, that if a patient comes into hospice, let's just say they're a cancer patient, they would have to give up uh, chemotherapy and radiation in order to receive hospice care. They do have to give up chemotherapy and radiation if it's designed to be curative in nature. But if the chemo and the radiation, as an example, is palliative in nature, meaning 
reducing pain and symptom problems or troubling symptoms or even perhaps even psychological palliation, the hospice program can provide hospice services and pay for those more expensive therapies out of their own reimbursement. Describe open access. Open access is essentially hospice eligibility. It's admitting appropriate hospice eligible patients into the hospice Medicare benefit. What we're trying to do is to get both providers of hospice care and and the community at large to recognize that we have a much greater opportunity to provide greater care for services if we are truly maximizing the number of eligible patients within our community. Can doctors still see their patients and get paid even after they're admitted to a hospice program? Absolutely. Prior to coming to this job at NHPCO, as I mentioned earlier, I ran hospice programs for 25 years, and we encouraged the primary care physician to maintain the relationship with the patient, continue to see the patient, uh, work with the hospice team, and to provide the service. So they can continue to do that, and they can bill for their services. And how do doctors benefit from hospice? Because the hospice team is actually seeing the patient in the home, can provide weekly, monthly, or however the physician wishes, reports back to that individual physician on that patient. Uh, They can be the eyes and the ears of the primary care doc taking care of the patient at home. I think that's a tremendous benefit. They can stay in charge of the plan of care along with the interdisciplinary team, and they can receive, I think, the benefit of being the doc in charge while there is an extended team in that patient's home meeting and greeting and working with the patient and supporting the family. Is a doctor's order required for hospice referral? The physician has to certify that the patient is terminally ill within six months or less, and that has to be two physician signatures. And how do doctors know when it is time to make that referral? In many years of caring for patients and families, uh, most physicians would recognize that the treatment the patient is receiving is no longer uh, curative, that it is, in fact, much more supportive or palliative. And for the benefit of the patient and the support to the family, identifying that as soon as possible so that you have patients who are able to live uh, comfortably in peace with a lot of pain and symptom management as soon as possible, that's how I think doctors can best identify that. What's your best advice on how to choose a hospice? If you want to choose a good hospice, have the family members call uh, that hospice program and ask them what the range of services are, if they're Medicare certified, Are they members of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization? Are they providing uh, what are much more clearly now defined quality measures that are going to be identified under CMS? Uh, Really a whole wide range of variables, and they could also go onto the NHPCO website or go onto our consumer website, which is calling info.org, which actually does talk about how to choose a hospice program in your community. What are the CMS quality measures? CMS quality measures are going to be released within the next couple of months, and we've redesigned our organization now so that our standards are going to reflect the CMS standards. They essentially call for the provider of hospice services to meet a series of guidelines that improve the quality of the patient's life, standardize the care, strong business practices that are ethical, meet all the state and local guidelines, basic compliance pieces, which are going to be codified uh, sometime within the next year through new conditions of participation. Is hospice for everybody? Hospice is probably not for the individual who says, I am not dying. I do not want to die. I am not going to accept the fact that I'm dying. If that is the case, then hospice itself may not be for everyone. However, palliative care for that individual would be meaning the physician, a physician, a palliative care physician, could help to provide the pain and symptom management necessary for that patient, despite the fact that they don't want to go into a hospice program. However, I will say to you that the intensity of care 
that's provided by the hospice provider is, at this point, much greater than it is uh, by the palliative care provider. What are areas for improvement with hospices? Well, we want to do some demonstration projects under Medicare. We've had this benefit now over 25 years. I think it's time for us to look at the fact that the patient population is changing. You know, as I said earlier, not, not all cancer, not mostly cancer like it was. We'd like to do some tinkering with the six-month or less criteria, seeing if that was extended or changed, with people's reactions or willingness to come into program change as well, just generally to try to expand the great care and see what we can do to move an agenda, a public policy agenda, that would be much broader in terms of accepting hospice services. What's your take-home message for medical professionals about hospice? Don't wait too long to refer a patient for hospice care. When I was running a program, I can't tell you how many folks came to me after the death of the patient. and Family members would come up to me and say, why didn't we come to you sooner? Why was my mother in pain for so long? So my recommendation is always not to wait too late. Dr. Schumacher, thank you for joining us today. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.